Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Yale's Whitney Humanities Center presents a lecture by noted essayist and biographer Adina Hoffman, who was appointed as the Frankie Visiting Fellow at the Whitney Humanities Center in the fall of 2008. Hoffman's lecture is titled Map of a Vanished Town, Recollecting the Palestine Past Through Biography. I'd like to preface um, what I'll be talking about this afternoon by telling you a bit about Taha. Um, the subject um, that I'll be discussing is not Taha per se, um, but I think that it would help to know something of his biography and his poetry um, in order to understand my own fascination uh, with what Robert Frost called a town that is no more a town. And that really is my subject today. It's Taha's town that is no more a town. Um, and I'll be talking about an erased landscape. Um, a physical landscape and a psychic landscape, um, and my own um, attempts as biographer to somehow reconstruct that place on the page. Um, but a few words about Taha first. Um, he was born in 1931 in the Galilee village of Safuria, which was in the north of what was then British Mandatory Palestine. Um, he was born to a very poor family. His father had polio, and Taha, as the oldest son, understood from an early age that it would be his role to be the, the breadwinner. And so from about age 10, he began to support his family. He sold, he bought eggs from the local women and sold them at um, a nice markup. Uh, he's a good businessman. He was already a good businessman at age 10. Um, he opened a little kiosk in his house where he sold chocolate bars and uh, pencils to the neighborhood kids. This evolved into a grocery store um, where he did a serious business. He sold everything from lentils to uh, indigo to gasoline uh, to canned Argentinian corned beef. Um, and at the same time, he, he had four years of schooling. Um, that's all. It was a very rudimentary village schooling. It was two years in the Quranic school for boys and two years uh, in the municipal school. He basically learned the alphabet, and that was about it, a little bit of the Quran, and that was all. Um, in 1948, Taha and the other villagers um, were forced out. And that is a whole saga unto itself. You'll have to buy the book and read about it. Um, but basically, Taha and his own family went to Lebanon. The people of the village scattered in various directions. They went to Lebanon um, and about nine months later snuck back. And what's amazing to think about is that they had essentially, in that time, become illegal aliens in their own homeland. The army deemed them infiltrators. They had to sneak around. They were not legally in the country. They were known as present absentees in the official parlance of the Israeli government, which is to say that they were not present for the first census, so they were absent. Um, uh, it was a horrible sort of floating position to be in. Eventually, his own family did manage to um, get hold of identity cards and become citizens. Um, but in the meantime, their village had been destroyed. So they really had no home to return to. So they picked up and moved to Nazareth, which is just a few miles away. But they're basically living in exile several miles from the place um, that was home. Taha still lives in Nazareth. Um, and he immediately did um, what he had always done and began to sell things. First, he sold things on the black market. This was the period of the austerity regime in Israel, which is to say that everything was rationed and there was a very lively uh, black market. Um, he then opened a falafel stand. Then he had a grocery store. Uh, the grocery store evolved into a souvenir shop. Um, and the souvenir shop has remained. Taha is the proud um, owner of a very successful souvenir shop. 
Um, and he said the reason he shifted from groceries to souvenirs is that he understood that people spend more money when they're on vacation, which is actually probably true. Um, he's also said that it's a wonderful job for a poet because what happens, basically the tour bus pulls up, the tourists get off, they buy some stuff, then they go away and they leave you with your book. <laughs> and Taha has really spent the last 60 years teaching himself. Um, as I said, four years of village schooling will not get you very far. So he basically had to teach himself from the ground up Arabic, which is a very difficult language. Just four years of school will not teach you Arabic. So he taught himself Arabic. He immersed himself in the classical Arabic tradition, in modern Arabic literature. He taught himself English. Um, he loves uh, Christopher Marlowe and Shelley and the novelist he calls John Steinbeck. Um, I'm sure he's read more novels than, of, of John Steinbeck than anyone in this room. Um, and he also, at the same time, he also read um, classical works from other languages or you know, great masterpieces in English translation, Chekhov and Maupassant. Um, he was also evolving at the same time into a writer. Um, he began as a fiction writer and later began to write poems. And I think it's safe to say, well, I'll let somebody else say it. Uh, Elliot Weinberger, who some of you may know, essayist and translator, uh, National Book Critics Circle winner, called Taha perhaps the most accessible and delightful poet alive today, um, which is actually no exaggeration. He's quite a remarkable poet. Um, this is Taha in his shop as a young man, um, his souvenir shop. Um, at the time that he was teaching himself all these things, he, his store also evolved into a kind of salon so that all of the Arabic um, literati, but also teachers and politicians and just ordinary people, many, many people passed through. And they would come and sit and talk in Taha's shop. Uh, Mahmoud Darwish, the Palestinian poet, national poet who just died a few months ago, was there when he was a high school student. Amil Habibi, the great novelist, and Tufik Zayad. Basically anyone who was anyone, and probably people who were not anyone, passed through and, and really sat and created this great air of intellectual um, a conversation that basically has been going on for the last um, half century. Um, Taha's shop continued to evolve. This is a bit later, you can see. It's named after his oldest son, Nizar, um, and has continued to evolve. This is the store today. It is the prominent souvenir center of Nazareth. Um, and yeah, you can see Taha. In fact, if I can figure out how, that's Taha right there. Um, and this is, uh, this is how Taha spends his days as he goes to the shop in the morning and, and sits and basically greets people. At this point, his sons run the store, but he's very much involved. He keeps the books, he order, does the ordering. Um, one of the things I love about Taha is the way that the shopkeeper and the poet meet in him. And to me, this is no, no more, nowhere clearer than in the, the signs that he's had made for the walls of the store. Um, and these combine the sort of the wisdom of the East with something like the Marx Brothers so that you get um, that's one of my favorites. Um, and he's also, I mean, Taha is very much the Palestinian peasant. He's a proud peasant. He talks about himself as the peasant, the son of a peasant. Um, but he's also got something of the Lower East Side. I like this combination. We have this. <laughs> That's Taha. And there's actually another one that I unfortunately do not have a picture of here, but it's probably safe to say that Taha's is the only souvenir shop in the Middle East where you can sort of buy your chachkas and your, your creches and whatnot under a sign that says, a thing of beauty is a joy forever. <laughs> John Keats. Um, but all joking aside, um, what I'm going to be talking about today is actually is much more serious and in fact fateful, um, and it is, as I said, Taha's village. This is the village. Um, 
this is actually the village in the year of Taha's birth, 1931. And it's a, it's a fairly famous photograph if you know um, anything about the village. But I actually discovered when I was doing research for this book that this was actually taken the week of Taha's birth um, by an archaeological team that was digging in the village. Um, you can actually see this here is Taha's house. Um, and why is the village so important? I mean, it's not just that as biographer I felt the need to tell about the place that my hero or protagonist had come from. It's really that Sephoria is central to Taha's poetry. Um, all of his poetry springs from the ground of this place. In the most literal sense, um, his, his poems are populated by characters who come from Sephoria. They speak the village dialect. They wear the village clothes. They, um, they are of the village. Um, in a slightly more overarching sense, there's a way in which the ethos of the poems is the ethos of Sephoria. Um, what is deemed beautiful and valuable and true is, in some sense, what the village, what Taha learned in the village of these things. Um, he himself has spoken, and not without irony, um, he's got a great deal of that, um, but he's spoken of his Sephoria in terms of Homer's Troy. Um, and he means, but he doesn't think he's Homer, and he knows this isn't Troy, but there's a sense in which this destroyed place, this destroyed city, fueled the imagination of Homer and others, and has continued to fuel the imaginations of readers throughout the centuries. And Taha, in his very humble, modest way, I think would hope for something like that um, from uh, his vision of, of the village as, it's, as it comes through in his poems. Um, those of you who know something about this region know that Sephoria has also been very important to many civilizations. It's historically, everyone has traipsed through, basically from the Canaanites on. It was a very important place in Jewish history. It was Tsipori is where the Mishnah was redacted. It was the seat of the Sanhedrin, but everyone's been there, the Greeks and the Romans and the Crusaders and the Byzantines. Not, no, not in that order, but, um, and, but it's, an, it's a very important place historically. Um, that was then. Um, this is now. Sephoria now is a Jewish National Fund pine forest um, dedicated to the memory of Guatemalan Independence Day. Um, and I think while we have this picture of this sort of erasure of the village up here, it's worth saying that for Taha, um, the village, it's not only about, for him, Sephoria is not just a matter of its own destruction. This is not he doesn't talk about the village as a, a mere piece of real estate to which he might return one day in some political settlement. This is not about the right of return in a literal or political sense. Um, it's really about the people who lived in the village and the chickens and the goats. And for, for Taha, Sephoria was a living place. Um, and his poems are an attempt to somehow account for the living nature of that place. Um, without that, he says, it's just dust and stones and empty space. Um, so what I would like to talk about now um, is really this place and my own attempts to find the living place um, as I set out to write Taha's biography. So without further ado, um, this is the map, map of a vanished town. With a title as haunted and haunting as its subject matter, all that remains is a monumental reference book in which the distinguished Palestinian historian Walid Khalidi and a team of researchers set out to chronicle the 418 Palestinian villages that Israel effectively erased in 1948. A painstakingly compiled document that is all the more moving for its matter-of-factness, 
The book offers photographs and brief business-like descriptions of each of these villages before 48, during the war, and today. And in doing so, it attempts to preserve on paper what has disappeared from the earth. Quote, now and then a few crumbled houses are left standing, a neglected mosque or church, collapsing walls along the ghost of a village lane. But in the vast majority of cases, all that remains is a scattering of stones across a forgotten landscape, unquote. The book is, says the preface, an attempt to record that lost world. There is, in this effort, an air both of urgency and of futility. If these facts aren't set down now, the authors seem to be saying, they will be gone forever. On the other hand, it is clear, as it is clear to anyone who has spent time trying to account in words for a way of life that no longer exists, that the book cannot ever be more than an attempt. Too many traces have already been destroyed or washed away. Too much time has passed. Too many witnesses have sunken into silence, forgotten, or died. Venturing to reconstruct the years of Taha's childhood and adolescence, or to imagine Sephoria in all its vanished richness and complication is, of course, a similar task. And as I work, interviewing, translating, and transcribing those interviews, sifting through archival files, combing footnotes and card catalogs, Xeroxing, looping microfilm, microfilm onto spools, pouring through old journals and newspapers, I sometimes feel myself an archaeologist, entrusted with an especially precious but partial and vulnerable to the elements mound of chipped relics and fragmented memories, each of which must be examined and gingerly placed in a pattern that makes some kind of sense. There are obstacles. The cheapest ink is better than memory, as Amin, Taha's then 70-year-old and youngest brother once told me, explaining his own passionate work as amateur historian and president of the Sephoria Heritage Society, a cultural political group that he founded with several friends in 1993. Among the society's goals is to salvage the remnants of the material and human past of Sephoria and other obliterated villages like it through the preservation of oral history and the collection of daily objects. One floor of Amin's Nazareth house is home to the society's offices and a remarkable single-room museum. This is a generic, almost corporate space with fluorescent lights, fiberglass ceilings, and shiny tile floors, filled almost to bursting with the incongruously pre-industrial and heartbreakingly modest paraphernalia of pre-1948 Galilee village life, baskets and mortars, shaving kits and wooden dowry boxes, a gauzy woman's headscarf trimmed with a dainty handmade menagerie of silk thread birds and flowers. Amin has, it seems, paid for much of this collection out of his own pocket and driven himself into debt in the process. When he sees an old Palestinian object, he must have it for the museum, rescue it, as it were, from near certain oblivion, and so somehow restore it to its proper place in the order of things. He himself doesn't talk in such cosmic terms, but does admit to the slightly obsessive nature of his collecting. He has also, single-handedly, performed a kind of oral history triage as he realized that he had had to act right away or else the older people would take with them to the grave irreplaceable information about the village, the popular names, for instance, for the different parts of town. Almost every plot in Sephoria was known to the villagers by a name based on its past or present owners, Khalat Sheikh Hassan. Sheikh Hassan's knoll, what grew there, Jurat Zatar, Hisap Gully, or some more mysterious association, Balata del Haya, the stone of the snake. At some point in the 1990s, Amin told me, he realized that, quote, the old people are dying and those names will disappear. I told myself, I have no choice. I'll ask them, 
what do you remember of the names from the village? I'll write it down. From here, 10 names. From there, 20 names. From there, 30. From there, 15. Then I'd go back and say, OK, we're in Safur. We want to go to Shafar Amr, which is the next large village. What is the name of the first block, the first parcel of land? What's it called? And what's after it? And after that? And after? And how big was this one? And this, it wasn't exact, but how much approximately? I worked on this list for maybe two years, and the names I didn't write down are gone. In a similar inch-by-inch inch way, he went from house to house around Nazareth, where today some 15,000 of the city's 60,000 residents count themselves as Sephorians, or descendants of Sephorians, and transcribed what the older people remembered of the names and owners of the village thoroughbreds, the names of the teachers in the village school. As he worked, word of his fascination with the town's history spread, and aging former villagers sought him out and presented him with priceless documents. One man had been responsible in the early 1940s for water distribution in the orchards, and had kept a detailed notebook listing the sizes and owners of the various plots. When the Israeli army occupied Sephoria in 1948, the man fled to Nazareth. But in the days immediately following the conquest, he managed to sneak back into his house and rescue the notebook, whose previously humdrum subject matter, irrigation, had been transformed in the course of that fateful week into the most valuable sort of written proof, sentimental proof of an eclipsed way of life, but also potentially legal proof of land ownership. Now, almost 50 years after Sephoria was leveled, he handed the notebook over for safekeeping to Amin, that is, to posterity. But as Amin is the first to admit, such systematically kept written records were the exception in the village and not the rule. Sephoria was an almost entirely oral place, and written documentation of the village, of the sort biographers tend to take for granted when constructing timelines and portraits of their subjects, simply does not exist. The village had no local newspaper, no records office, no medical files, no school yearbook. None of Taha's relatives or friends kept date books or diaries or wrote newsy letters to out-of-town aunts. His mother hung no smiling wedding pictures from her walls, and she did not memorialize her children's growth in a scrapbook or photo album. And whatever private papers of Taha's that might once have existed, his report cards, his first attempts at writing, the single photograph taken of him as a child, were destroyed when the village was destroyed. Quote, we have a problem. Our problem is that our people aren't historians. We depend on listening. You hear a story, and you tell it, and distort it. You add to it, you take away from it, says Amin. And aside from the information and old photographs that he himself has valiantly gathered, and that the Sephoria Heritage Society printed in two glossy magazines and a wall calendar, the written vestiges of the village are sketchy in the extreme. Recently, a former villager published a catch-all collection of Sephoria history and lore, which includes folk songs, family names, pictures of ancient coins and oil lamps found in the village, a chronicle of Sephoria during the Crusader aggression, lists of local birds, the martyrs killed in 1948, herbal medicine prescriptions, wedding customs, and so on. And another slender memorial volume was compiled in Syria by two refugees who live there and whose work is apparently unknown to their former neighbors, the Sephorians in Israel. I stumbled on a copy while browsing in the stacks of a large American university library. I can tell you that that is a Sterling Memorial <laughs> Library. <laughs> Beyond that, the only paper trail left by the village is a thin, fascinating, and distinctly misleading one, which passes through archives now housed in Israel and England, the British-controlled Palestine from 1917 until 1948, the period now known now simply as the Mandate. And when they decamped in the chaos of that last year, they took some files with them, burned some, and left others behind in uncharacteristically pell-mell fashion. 
These records provide a glimpse into the life of the village that is, on the one hand, marvelously concrete, not precarious, precarious and shifting like memory, and so an exciting discovery for someone trying to rebuild the village, as it were, on the page. The tabletop-sized Mandate-era Nazareth police station logs that have survived the years, for instance, offer the most tangible facts about the people and pulse of the village. Who bullied who, who cheated who, who beamed who with a rock at exactly what hour on what day? But as these few examples indicate, and as logic dictates, the only sort of events that are preserved in the law enforcement files are the grumbling, ugly ones. This is merely a story of grievances and arrests. And though the tale told by these records is no doubt true and important to account for somehow as one tries to conjure the village, it also leaves out the contented, day in, day out, uncomplaining side of Sephoria. And according to the people who live there, this was the place they knew and loved. The villagers entered the written record only when they were dealing with the outside world, which is to say, when something went wrong. Besides the fist fights and robberies recorded in the police station, in the police logs, various crimes are set down there that seem, in retrospect, to implicate the English authorities more than the villagers. The strict legalism of the mandatory system graded against the villagers' traditional way of life, so that, for instance, the police could often be found charging the people of Sephoria with harvesting and threshing wheat without a permit, and picking olives before the date appointed by the administrative office. In one case, a charge of illegal celebration of a marriage is noted, followed by a brief cryptic explanation. Secret information that four girls were married underage in Sephoria, all x-rayed, found to be under 15 years old. Other loaded interactions are preserved in innocuous sounding files like the one called Sephoria Roads, now housed in the Israel State Archive. There one finds the lengthy correspondence between the Sephoria Local Council and the British High Commissioner about the urgent need to pave the single road that connected Sephoria with the towns nearby, with, in other words, that very outside world. This exchange kicks off with a respectful 1935 letter written in literary Arabic and translated by a mandatory clerk into slightly stilted English. Quote, during your last visit to Sephoria, Your Excellency noted how large is our village, with its numerous inhabitants, large areas of lands, sufficient water, and vast gardens. On your return to Jerusalem, Your Excellency have kindly ordered your local representatives to expend a certain amount on leveling the road to our village. Whereas we have important commercial relations with the towns of Haifa, Acre, Nazareth, and Tiberias, to which our vegetables, fruits, and animals are exhibited for sale, therefore we have no easy connection with the said towns in view of the fact that the licensed buses of our village are unable to pass the said road, which is now muddy from rains. <laughs> After their request was summarily rejected by the district commissioner on what appeared to be financial grounds, the bus owners themselves began to complain since their business was suffering during the rainy season, and by 1937, the town's mayor, Sheikh Saleh Salim Suleiman, and the council were driven to write another, much testier and surprisingly political letter to His Excellency. Quote, we suggest that because we are native landlords, the public works department did not take an interest in this matter. While for the interest of the Jews, a road from Ginnasar to Nahalal is being constructed, which will cost government 22,000 pounds, and another road from Afula to Shata, which will also cost double the expenses of the other roads. Seeing this injustice, we humbly complain to Your Excellency against the action of the Public Works Department. More than a decade after the council's first letter on the subject had been delivered to Jerusalem, the road was still washing out, complaints were registered that doctors couldn't get through to the village, and the district commissioner finally wound around to recommending a loan to the council for the long-awaited pavement. His reasoning, though, is startling in its steeliness. 
After admitting that the village is indeed, quote, one of the principal suppliers for the vegetable markets of Haifa and that a considerable amount of commercial traffic proceeds in and out of the local council area daily, he gets down to what's really on his mind. <clears throat> I would also add that in the event of a recrudescence of disorders on the Arab side, Sephoria would undoubtedly be the chief center in the Nazareth area of organized resistance to government and the existence of a fast asphalted approach road would be of considerable assistance to the forces of law and order. Even the logic of so-called security didn't win out, though. The loan was declined, 1948 soon arrived, and it seems the village never got its asphalt. Sheikh Saleh and the council make frequent appearances in the files. They were, after all, the village's official representatives before the powers that were. In only a few instances do the people of Sephoria speak for themselves. Aside from several appeals on behalf of prisoners and the desperate letter of a father about the disappearance of his two boys, one of whom is preserved forever in epistolary amber as a 14-year-old wearing khaki trousers and a shirt under a yellow kumbaz when he was last seen, there is in fact, as far as I can tell, a single file that contains letters from ordinary citizens. Though it should be said here that the archives themselves are vast haystacks containing who knows how many needles. The Israel State Archive in particular holds a treasure trove of Mandate Era documents. Everything from files called Maronite monks to field mice, erection of electric poles, bomb outrages, nutrition in the colonial empire, enumeration of goats, lunatics, playing cards, stamp vendors, alleged discovery of gold in Palestine, preservation of public morality, search for buried treasure, and manufacture and sale of whipped cream. But at the time of my work there, the archive lacked a centralized cataloging system. And to find any trace of the village at all, one had to pour over long, irregular, and often incorrectly typed or scribbled, half Hebrew, half English lists, under an assortment of headings, and flip through unalphabetized handwritten card catalogs in search of a place spelled variably as Sephoria, 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 and by its Hebrew name, Sipori, Tsipori, 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 Tsipori. Not to be confused with a different village in the Jaffa district called Safiria, Safiria. Okay. Each file had to be ordered up from the vault, at which point one would inevitably be told that certain documents were missing or off limits because of their fragile state. The folders that did arrive, their contents sometimes crumbling or preserved in the faintest carbon copy, had then to be sorted through carefully for clues. It seems almost certain that the archive contains other mentions of the village that I have not unearthed or been able to decipher. Once in hand, that Sephoria village general correspondence file itself is both fascinating and frustrating. If it is an encounter with the actual voices of the villagers one is looking for, one will not find it there. Because of the tonal and formal gaps between written and spoken Arabic, and because most of the people of Sephoria were illiterate, the letters that have survived in the files seem oddly filtered or displaced. A few of the authors were educated and wrote in their own words and hand, and here and there a letter does exist that blends literary and transliterated spoken Arabic in intriguing ways. These seem to be letters written by the villagers without outside help. But the vast majority of the petitioners must have relied on a kind of scribe or really a translator, a person like one of the local school teachers who would have listened patiently to whatever the particular complaint offered up in the thick village dialect and probably in scrappy conversational terms, then paused for a moment before dipping a pen in ink and recasting the same thoughts in proper literary Arabic and in a register that would have been appropriate for addressing a foreign figure of authority. When the letter was complete, the complainant would stick a thumb into that same ink pot and stamp the page in lieu of signing. 
Oddly, these smudged fingerprints seem a more intimate link to the peasants than do any number of the scribes' polished words. Although the villagers' particular cadences may be lost forever, the nature of their complaints is telling and moving in its humble scale. As one reads, it is difficult to keep from one's mind the tremendous losses that awaited the people of Sephoria in 1948 and that would forever dwarf gripes like the one conveyed in a 1947 letter from a man who writes to the Nazareth District Commissioner to register his dismay that his neighbor had been digging under a stone wall that separated their two gardens, so rendering the divider dangerously unstable. Or the letter from one Muhammad, whose son Ibrahim died and left his children a cow. Muhammad's other son, Lafi, meanwhile, sold the cow to his father-in-law. But, argues Muhammad, it still belongs to the children. He asks the help of the assistant district commissioner in attempting to return the cow to its rightful owners. The British archives, for their part, are almost parodic models of efficiency, good cheer, and order. Israel may have inherited harsh methods of equestrian crowd control and prisoner interrogation from the British, but somehow the legacy of neat bookkeeping and gracious service got away at the end of the mandate. The papers that are preserved so conscientiously in London and in Oxford, though, tend to belong on a different, loftier, more abstract plane than the cows, stone walls, and washed out roads of the Israel State Archive files. The documents of the Colonial Office, for instance, now kept in the National Archives at Kew, concern matters of government policy and broader security trends, while the Foreign Office papers contain lengthy exchanges about such sweeping subjects as Arab political activity in general. A village like Sephoria, not surprisingly, barely registers in this Whitehall-centered context. At Oxford, where the private papers of various mandatory clerks, ambassadors, army officers, missionaries, and teachers are held, the village turns up just a few times as several high-ranking police officials preserve the records of two famous crimes that may or may not have involved Sephorians. These crimes and their aftermath also account for the village's fleeting appearance in the newspapers of the period. Here and there, mention is made in a less fraught framework, such as the 1943 Palestine Post article about how, quote, a fine wolf was killed by British police near Sephoria, and its very excellent skin adorns the canteen floor of the mounted police striking force. Or the report from 1944 of a Sephoria flour mill gutted by a fire, quote, believed to have been caused by an overheated exhaust pipe. Other archival sources of information about the village exist, though these belong to the more slippery and menacing category of army intelligence. And here, another point of view appears. Throughout the 1940s, the pre-state intelligence branch of the Haganah, the precursor to the IDF, compiled surveys of some 700 Arab villages, towns, cities, and Bedouin encampments, whether for eventual operational purposes or, as one scholar has proposed, to prove the theory that was then being floated in certain Jewish circles, and still convinces some today, that the Arabs of Palestine were recent arrivals in the country, a random assortment of Egyptians and nomads with little claim on the land. According to one Jewish historian at the time who was eagerly urging the Jewish agency to sponsor an investigation in a scientific fashion into the origins of each Arab village, quote, this information has great political worth. Sephoria was one of the villages included in the survey, and the 1943 document that survives in the Haganah archive is as interesting for what it gets wrong as what it gets right. These neatly typed six pages of Hebrew include more or less accurate information about the village's water sources, roads, livestock, lands, and agricultural production, as they manage to completely mis misrepresent the town's social fabric, scrambling the names and importance of the main families of the town, their precise origins, the mukhtars, the family or village chiefs, the number of mosques and guest houses, 
For reasons that remain unclear, the document also claims that 50% of the villagers could read, unlikely at a time when the literacy rate for Muslims throughout Palestine was probably less than half that. The rest of the material put forth in the survey is hard to prove or disprove. Lists of men who allegedly participated in the 1936 to 1939 revolt fought by Palestinian Arabs against British rule and Jewish settlement, an account of the weapons confiscated from the villagers, names of troublemakers, quote unquote, and an estimate of the damages incurred during this period, whether inflicted by the government, house de demolitions for example, or by the rebels who seized money and guns from the villagers. The village is described as a nest for the Young Men's Muslim Association and a place where the Arab terrorists and murderers found, murderers found shelter. In the sole first person sentence in the whole document, its author, who was known to have been an Arab collaborator from the village of Anabta, declares, I do not think there was a single young man in Sephoria who did not participate in the disturbances, by which he means the revolt, whether openly or secretly. Because of the complete absence of written accounts from the villagers' perspective about what went on in Sephoria during the revolt, these aspects of the report are hard to dispute but not at all difficult to doubt, given the identity of their author and apparent purpose. The typed, tagged, and catalog record is, it turns out, Pache Amin, often just as dubious as half-recalled, even secondhand bits and pieces recounted some 60 years on. That said, files of this tendentious intelligence sort, whether British or Zionist, also constitute the most systematically preserved body of first-hand documentation from the pre-1948 period. Given the scarcity of real-time sources, anyone searching for Sephoria's traces simply cannot afford to dismiss them. Another place one may turn to catch a glimpse of Sephoria and its people as they were then, and not as they're remembered now, is in the few photographs of the village that exist. A handful of these were taken by the gifted and prolific Eric, Eric Matson, Swedish-born photographer for the American colony, the legendary messianic Christian commune and charitable enclave in Jerusalem, now the site of a famously famously posh hotel in the most elegant garden bar in all of Israel-Palestine. Between 1898 and 1946, Matson and his pictorially inclined predecessors and colleagues at the colony shot some 20,000 photographs and lantern slides of, as they dubbed them, Bible lands, etc. <laughs> These were images whose subjects ranged widely, from the scriptural to the botanical to the documentary to the romantic. Matson's photographs of Sephoria are few but powerful, all dated from circa 1940, and what must have been a single summertime outing to the village with his camera. These include several glowing shots of the threshing floors, you can see the threshing floors, and water station, both bustling and alive as seen through Matson's lens. Given how vivid these few flashes are, one only wishes he had taken more pictures of the village. Here and there, other glimpses of the place surface. In 1932, a group of educational inspectors snapped photos of village children throughout Palestine and placed the pictures in an album, which they planned to turn into a lantern show, quote, to be shown to the falahin, the peasants, on our trips to the villages. The appeal that the projection of his life conditions on the screen will make to the falah cannot be overestimated. The seven staged-looking photos of Sephoria students in this album are labeled with captions that veer from the sticky sweet, Schoolboys happy at their debka, a fine native dance that should be preserved to the paternalistic. The teacher explaining to the falahin, most of the villagers in the picture are adults and probably farmers, how to prepare seed beds for the propagation of forest and fruit trees. To the presumptuously melodramatic, the, the neglected future generation. A smattering of other pictures exist with no photographer's name attached. 
But to my mind, one of the strangest and most telling visual keyholes into Sephoria lies in the images shot by an archaeological team that excavated in the village, the site of the ancient and illustrious town of Sepphoris, in the early 1930s. Perhaps these photos are so potent because they weren't meant to represent the village at all, a notion that was freighted from the moment cameras came to Palestine in the second half of the 19th century, and Western photographers set about trying to capture for the viewers back home authentic biblical scenes and the country's timeless landscapes. In a few instances, the DIG's official photographer, Fadil Sabah, a Palestinian Arab himself as it happens, turned his camera directly to face the people of Sephoria. The archaeological album contains several posed portraits of the laborers and a single candid shot of the work unfolding. But the vast majority of the excavation photographs are meant to show off the relics that the crews were digging up. The villagers appear in these photos as no more than biped measuring sticks. And while it is slightly unsettling to see the Sephorians acting in this object-like way, standing stiff and blank-faced beside some stone column or at the end of a newly unearthed basilica, there they are, in the flesh and in their own clothes, with their thoughts tucked a bit mysteriously behind their impassive expressions. Cipher-like messengers from that now-vanished world, they have a ghostly presence at the corners and edges of these pictures. Hovering there in the ruins of, Sephort, of Sepphoris that were soon to become the ruins of Sephoria, they seem at once closer and farther off than ever. And finally, a single map of the village exists. It is a carefully rendered English plan of the older parts of town, dated 1945, and though it does not contain the maniacally precise agricultural and architectural minutiae of other uh, mandatory maps from around the same time, whose colored keys indicate, include dainty symbols for such features as mosque with minaret, coniferous trees, and lime kiln, along with a sternly italicized proviso, nota bene, the representation on this map of a road, track, or footpath is no evidence of the existence of a right of way. Its cartographers did take pains to chart every building in Sephoria. Amin's museum boasts a blurry, poster-sized copy of a copy of this map. And one evening, when I am in Nazareth, he offers to bring it over to Taha's house so that the two of them can give me a tour of the village. First, Imnizar, who's Taha's wife, she's named for her oldest son, Nizar, she's the mother of Nizar. First, Imnizar makes the rounds with the usual nut-stuffed cookies and small cups of coffee. Then she sits, exhausted as always after a full day's housework, talking, sighing, and giggling with Im Arab, Amin's wife, who was also born in Sephoria, but who dresses and carries herself differently from Im Nizar, like a city woman. They're just a few years apart, but belong somehow to two distinct generations, as do Taha and Amin, whose four-year age gap seems multiplied several fold in both physical and psychological terms. With his crooked lope, booming rasp of a, vo of a voice, prodigious wrinkles, and ability to take command of any room, Taha is not just the older, but an elder, a kind of born Mukhtar. Amin, meanwhile, though now gray-haired and fairly wrinkled himself, is very much the younger brother. Spryer, itchier, more coiled to spring than Taha, he seems thoroughly unconcerned with his appearance, but cannot help his own slightly down-at-the-heels handsomeness. Almost despite himself and his polyester pants, he bears a rather uncanny resemblance to the aging Marcello Mastriani. After all my time in the archives, dousing for some, any trace of the people of Sephoria, it is a relief to sit with Taha and Imnizar, Amin and Im Arab, sipping coffee in this familiar living room with its worn couches, plush drapes, and brass bric-a-brac. 
Under the gaze of a plastic wall clock, a large reproduction of the Mona Lisa, and perhaps the most iconic photo of Sephoria that exists, a 1931 panorama of the village shot by that archaeological dig's unfamous photographer, we huddle over the map of the lost town. Amin ignores the women's soft laughter and begins to point and narrate in intent Arabic, leading me from front door to front door. This is the house of Hussein Ibrahim, and this is the house of Flefel, Taha adds in English. The one with the goats, Amin. Flefel, what's his name? Taha, Salim, Amin. Salim of Flefel, Salim. Here's Brahim Abu Qasim, Taha, he is a relative, Amin. And here, here's our house. Here's the street, and here's the compound of Sheikh Saleh Salim. This name is offered in chorus, the two of them singing it out. Taha, he had many houses for his brothers and his three wives. And here's Ali Hussein, no, first it was Qasim Mustafa. No, says Amin. You are right, says Taha. And this is Shantawi. No, no, next to it. What's his name? Who? The one with the books, the one who read many books, an educated one, says Taha. What do you mean, Ya Taha? This here is Abu Ahmad's house. Next to it is uh, Saeed Amin. Near it is the house of Ilambad. Now, am I right, Ya Taha? And on into the night we go, with Im Nizar and Im Arab gossip, gossiping animatedly and sometimes chipping in the chortled nickname of a neighbor or store owner, at one point even bursting out into a series of Sephoria wedding songs whose jubilantly simple refrains appear to have resurfaced suddenly after more than 50 years underground Lena ya Safuriat, Lena Farah Jadid Mabarak Alena. Oh, women of Safuria, a new joy has blessed us. As they sing and talk, I'm scribbling to set down whatever I can, and the brothers are taking turns pressing their fingers into the tiny cubes that indicate what once were houses on the map. The longer we sit here, the more involved the two become in each other and in their sometimes disparate visions of the village, which begins, nonetheless, to emerge in composite before me on the fuzzy Xerox. Their tone veering from excitement to melancholy and back again. One will gently place a hand on the other's wrist to correct or argue or agree, as now they chuckle at some newly remembered detail. And now, fish in vain for a name that has disappeared into the distance. Thank you. <laughs> the Frankie Visiting Scholars and Artists Program is made possible by the generosity of Mr. and Mrs. Richard Frankie. The creation of this residential fellowship is intended to ensure ongoing interdisciplinary exchange and creative debate at the Whitney in particular and Yale in general. The Frankies also endowed an annual series of lectures and seminars at the Whitney, which present enduring topics in the humanities to Yale undergraduates and to the broader New Haven community. Adina Hoffman spoke on October 7, 2008 at the Whitney Humanities Center.